Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. Now, this edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show is a best of show. Now, normally, once in a while, when nothing's happening or I get bogged down with stuff, I will do a best of show. I haven't had time to record an episode this month, but I figured why not do a best of show right now just to get things moving. As I hope from here on in, it'll be every two weeks you'll have a new episode. As it's been tough trying to get back to the regular two-week schedule lately. But this episode will hold you over till next episode. As in this episode, it's going to be an interviews-only episode. Meaning, I'm going to highlight two of my favorite interviews. And then afterwards, I'll highlight one of my favorite What's Anthony T. Watching segments. And trust me, it's a crazy film from Troma that you can only see on the Troma Now streaming service. But first, I have two interviews, both from the Anthony T's Horror Show era of the podcast. As there are separate eras of this podcast. First, it was Anthony T's Horror Show era. Then I decided to start a new era of the podcast earlier this year and add wrestling to the podcast to make it Anthony T's Horror in wrestling show, but these interviews here are coming from the Anthony T's Horror Show era. In fact, everything in volume four of the best of is from the Anthony T's Horror Show era. First, I'm going back to episode 51 where I interviewed author Patrick Ray Hall to talk about his book, How Much Do You Tip an Exorcist? That's a very fun interview. The book is currently available through Source Point Press. Then afterwards, I'll be going to episode 54, and you'll get to hear my interview with Benjamin Shivens, the owner of Fright Rags. Both very good interviews. Then afterwards, I will have a retro What's Anthony T. Watching segment, where I talk about a film that's on trauma now. I hope you enjoyed the fourth volume of the Best of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. And I'll be back after with some upcoming notes about the podcast and other projects that yours truly is involved in. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. Besides Anthony T's Horror Show, you can also listen to these other fine podcasts on the Doc Discussions Network. 
Doc Discussions, hosted by Philip Perrone and Michael Darwin. You Know Nothing, Jon Snow, a Game of Thrones podcast. Bullets, Brothels, and Bots, a Westworld podcast. Halloween Boutique, Psychotronic Reviews. And Searching for American Gods. You can find Doc Discussions on the web at www.docdiscussions.com and Doc Discussions is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Welcome back to Anthony E.T.'s Horror Show. I'm here with author Patrick Rahal. You may know him because he's already been on the podcast earlier this year, along with Ashes of Our Nightmare. You know him mostly as Patsy the Angry Nerd from Throwdown Thursday and Shock Bites. He is here today to talk about his debut book, How Much Do You Tip an Exorcist? How are you doing today, Patrick? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, having me on, and thank you so much for uh, wanting to talk about the book. I really appreciate it. Now, before we get to everything, since you're a podcaster, I'm a podcaster, and last segment on my podcast, I talked about the Craft Legacy trailer, which ended up like one of my long-winded rants, <laughs> which we're not going to hear about any more from me. What are your thoughts on the trailer? Well, I enjoyed the uh, the original, but it seems to me that what Blumhouse has done with their last couple of big trailers like this and Black Christmas, where they're remaking you know, uh, beloved properties, is they give away the entire movie uh, at in, in the trailer, and so there's no reason to see the movie. Like in Black Christmas, I was like, oh, well, that's a twist. Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, okay. Well, that's fun. And you revealed who the bad guy was. Okay, I don't need to see this movie. And then watching this trailer, it seemed like uh, whoever the director was, I don't think she had uh, any any say in what the trailer was because the original film it was basically and i'm blanking on her name but like the one girl against the other three and she was good and they were all bad and now this trailer is absolutely 100 percent uh she's bad and she's more powerful and the other three have to band together to defeat her that's absolutely what's going on and just throwing in a picture of Feruza Balk and, you know, her catchphrase there, you know, we are the weirdos, mister, um, isn't, isn't enough for me. It's not like I got, I didn't get the craft vibes from this. I got, you know, any of those like, uh, you know, Carrie or any of those, those movies with, uh, kids with psycho, psychokinetic powers. That's what I got out of this. Like, I didn't see magic or anything. I mean, obviously, like, the little things are like, oh, look, we, we did your makeup. Oh, look, we did this. It seemed more to me like people with superhero powers. It's like they turned it into a superhero film more than a film about girls battling through witchcraft. I don't know what you thought, but... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I can tell you, I really felt sad for David Duchovny 
and Michelle Moynihan being attached to this film. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I mean, I think they're definitely going to be bright spots in this, and I I don't want to uh, cast any aspersions on the, the actresses who were playing the uh, the four teens there, because they seemed like they're really into it, and you know, from what I saw in the trailer, they seemed to be doing a decent job. It's not their fault that the script is so heavy-handed and just, eh, like... Again, why would you give away everything in the trailer? Like, I hate that. Like, leave some intrigue. I know. It's been the typical Blumhouse formula lately with these remakes and sequels. I even said in my rant, I think, or might have said in my rant, that Jason Blum is trying to ruin every horror film ever made. You think it's like a long con where he's like, he's like this huge guy in horror, but he actually hates horror, and so he's trying to ruin it? I don't think he hates horror. I just think he doesn't put the right people in. It's like, unless it was like David Gordon Green or Leigh Winnell, it always turns out badly in the trailer that you don't want to see the film. And see, here's the thing, uh... That that kind of bugged me, and it, it went with a couple other films. Like, I didn't see Black Christmas, because I didn't have to, because I saw the trailer. I did recently watch uh, Fantasy Island. And the problem is, you get these really strong actors. You know, Maggie Q, uh, uh, Michael Pena, and uh, I forget who the, the young lady was. I want to call her, like, Haley something. Lizzie Hale, I think? Lizzie Hale, that's, yeah. I, I was close. I, I got Haley out of Lizzie. Uh, but Lucy Hale. Lucy Hale, yes. Lizzie Hale is Hailstorm. I was thinking Hailstorm. I don't know why I said that. No, no, no it's, it's close. Um, see, we both were like right there on the cusp of it. You get strong performances from your crew, like your actors, but to come up, like I, I, I'm curious to know how much he is involved with the storylines and how much he's involved with cutting these trailers because... Like, Treasure uh, Treasure Island, Jesus, Fantasy Island definitely didn't give away the uh, the plot. But, like, I don't know if you saw it, but I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this season of Lost. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this is awful. Where's the smoke monster? <laughs> I have not seen Fantasy Island yet. It's the- like Lost meets Moana. Because I watched, uh, I think, the 19, the remake with Malcolm McDowell. Love that one. Okay. And it's like, because I know that uh, remake was a television series. That was actually good. This one looks like it sucks. So I haven't had time to see it yet. Again, it's it's got very strong performances from all the uh, the actors involved. Um, even uh, the guy that starred with uh, Michael Pena and Chips, Dax Shepard, that's who it was. Even he got a decent performance, you know, and I, I was uh, fairly impressed with how he did. He was good in that. But, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was was weird, and I wasn't a huge fan. But as far as the, the craft goes, I mean, again, 
I'm all for remakes. One of my favorite movies of all time, technically, is a remake, you know, The Thing, 1982. But, you know, you and I, I think, are of a similar mind where we much prefer the independent creators to, you know, the big, bigger budgeted uh, Hollywood endeavors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some good Hollywood directors, like uh, Lene Winnell... James Wan. From Saw. From Saw. Those guys. David Gordon Green. Refresh me. Who who is, uh, who he, who, uh, who he is and what he's done? David Gordon Green? Yeah. He did a lot Halloween. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I, I knew I knew the name. I just could not remember. And I believe he also did Pineapple Express 2. That I didn't know there was a sequel, and I haven't seen the original. No, there's a no. Pineapple Express is actually a standalone film, and Halloween is like the reboot that he did a couple of years ago. Oh, oh, oh! You were saying Pineapple Express also? Sorry, I thought no. It was just Seth Rogen, James Franco. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I do it. I thought you meant like that he had done a sequel no. to that. Like, oh, I didn't know there was. It's just the way you uh, the way you said it. I I took it as. <laughs> I was trying to say another film he did. <laughs> In addition to no, I I get you now. I was just I was like, oh man, I've also been uh, drinking rum for the past three hours, so because I just got off a live podcast with my brothers and my wife talking sports, so I didn't quite get where you were going with that one. So yeah, sorry, that's that's my fault. Now that I listen back to what you're saying, yes, you articulated it correctly. I just heard it wrong. <laughs> Let's get on with the interview. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> now, I know you mostly as a podcaster. How did you get into podcasting? Uh, getting into podcasting, uh, it's a funny story. I have uh, several friends uh, who kind of inspired me, and it's funny. There's like a long line of, of folks who inspired them, and I kind of want to shout those guys out. So it started, I guess, with uh, Outside the Cinema with Bill Fulkerson. Uh, and if you haven't, yeah, I know you're a big uh, indie indie uh, survival of the film freaks. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, great film uh, available on Amazon uh, to stream. Uh, they kind of inspired Trick or Treat Radio, and Trick or Treat Radio—they're all friends of mine. You know, uh, actually, Johnny Wolfenstein, when we first started doing this podcast, was our producer. They invited me on. Uh, one day, and uh, it was my first my first ever podcast. It was Trick or Treat Radio episode number sixty eight. All the boys love Larry Fine. That was uh, that was the name, and uh, I had so much fun. And that was like December of twenty thirteen. And a few years later, I was thinking about it. I was like, I kind of want to start my own show. Like, I want to do my own show. Like, it's it's fun listening to shows, and you know, when you're at home and you're listening, and I'm sure you've done this, and I'm sure your listeners are the same way, like, you'll express an opinion, and, like, maybe you feel very strongly about a certain thing, like, say, about Blumhouse films, and somebody might vehemently disagree with you, and, like, they're yelling into their, just into the, the, the ether, because you can't hear them, because it's a recording, um, and it's like, oh, you know what, I think I want to start talking about my own thing, and my original show idea was I, I started doing this thing called Throwdown Thursday to kind of piggyback off the Throwback Thursday hashtag that was trending at the time. 
and I'm like, what if we took random characters and we had them face off against each other? You know, similar to like what Death Battle did, but instead of like doing all the research into physics and whatnot, we just had people vote. And that kind of built into what I was doing. And when I first did the, the first couple of episodes, uh, it was with my friend, uh, Agent Nicole, who is no longer on the show. She did about 100 episodes with us. And it didn't work out. I, I didn't think it through as well as I would have liked, <laughs> because uh, we also would record two episodes every other Saturday. So it was kind of a weird, a weird thing, because you couldn't have people vote on something if you were recording every other Saturday. So it's like, oh, this show aired, you know, on the 10th, and this show airs on the 17th, but they were both recorded prior to that, so you can't take any feedback for those shows because they're already recorded. Uh, then Johnny Wolfenstein ended up moving to Florida, uh, Florida, Maryland, and so we took over doing our own show. Uh, I learned how to, you know, uh, produce the show, and we got all our own equipment. And that was uh, June, July of 2019, and uh, we're we've been going strong ever since. My wife Ash has joined on uh, like the third episode she came on, and she was like, "Wow, this is a lot of fun." And I was like, "See, I told you." And now we're about to drop. Uh, we're we're in the 220s at this point. What made you want to step out of the podcasting and dive into the literary field? Well, I've always I've always enjoyed uh, expressing myself um, creatively, whether it be like drawings or you know like little stories. Like I've been writing ever since I was a little kid, and uh, around the time I was twelve or so, so around sixth grade, which would be nineteen ninety three, I got really frustrated and I was like, no one's gonna read this stuff. Like it's too crazy, it's too off the wall, like. It's too dumb. No one's going to ever read this. So I'm just I'm just going to stick to reading instead of writing. I would read a lot of Stephen King, and I read a story called The Mangler, which is about a haunted laundry machine that kills people. And I was like, all right, well, nothing I write is going to be stupid in comparison. And they made The Mangler into a movie, and it has a sequel. So I was like, all right, nothing I could possibly write is going to be dumber than a haunted laundry machine that kills people. Now, as a premise, that's stupid, and I'm I'm very much oversimplifying it, but there's... You know, really good detail that goes into it, you know, as Stephen King does, um, you know, all about the uh, the whole, you know, like the specific herbs like belladonna gets, you know, mixed in with some laundry and like that gets exposed into the thing. And then, you know, uh, a young girl cuts herself and now they've got the blood of a virgin and like you mix this with this, with this, with this, with this, and it creates sentience in this uh, laundry machine. So there was, you know, there was some you know, actual research that went into it. I'm, I, like I said, I'm very much oversimplifying it, but um, I read all kinds of stories. Like, I read a lot of Norse mythology that I really enjoyed, Egyptian mythology, Greek and Roman, which is essentially the same thing. You just switch the names around. I enjoyed reading a lot, so I wanted to tell my own stories. How did you come up with the title of the book that we're going to talk about? How much do you tip an exorcist? And what made you want to have an offbeat title for this collection? Well, the title, the title came about because uh, we, I was just talking with some people one day. I, it might have even been at work, and I was like, "How come when you drive through at Dunkin's, you you leave them a tip, but when you drive through at like McDonald's, you don't leave a tip?" And then we started talking about other professions that 
would leave a tip, you know, and like, well, how come you don't tip firefighters, you know, but you tip like the pizza guy, you know, like arguably the firefighter is doing a more important job. Um, and then it just delved into, you know, it just it devolved into like crazy stuff. It was a weird, weird thing. But once I came up with that title, I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be the title. And as you know, because you've gone through some of the, uh, the horror haikus that are in it, that's kind of the subject of one of those horror haikus. What was it like writing this book compared to all the podcasting you do? Podcasting, you don't have to worry. Uh, at least I don't. I, I don't worry about editing myself. Like most of what you see or uh, if we do a live show, see or hear is just off the cuff. With, you know, if I don't articulate an idea particularly well, I just be like, well, you know what I mean. If you're writing, it's different because you have to really uh, draw your audience in and make them care about what you're talking about. Um, with the podcast, sometimes, you know, people are going to come in with a preconceived notion. It's like, well, I don't really care about, you know, Godzilla, so I'm not going to listen to that episode. But I really like Doctor Strange, so I want to listen to their take on that. So... With the book, uh, when you're writing a story, you, you want to tell a complete narrative, but also keep your, your reader's attention until you get you know, to, the, to the end of the story. And, and hopefully that when folks read this, they'll get to the end of each story or each haiku or each two-sentence story, and they'll say, okay, that was a, a complete narrative. I liked parts A, B, and C, and uh, yeah, I feel satisfied with the end of that. This book has four sections. Two-word sentences, horror haikus, short stories, and fake lists, including a list that the people at Sci-Fi are already reading as they are looking to make their next annoying Sharknado-type franchise for <laughs> me to rant about. Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> what gave you the idea to have separate sections instead of doing a traditional short story collection. So, a lot of this has to do with Jeanette Andromeda, who is the illustrator of this book, and a beyond phenomenal artist. Uh, she's... Uh, we did this thing back in 2015 uh, called Horror Haikus Day. We had met at Rock and Shock and became friends, uh, and we've, we've been close friends since then. We were doing this thing called Horror Haikus Day, where I would come up with a haiku and she would illustrate it. And then I would see how great her art was. And she would post it on social media, you know, for her uh, Horror Maid uh, was the, uh, the title it was going underneath. And, you know, I would see her artwork and I was like, man, I have to step up my story game. But at the same time, she would, uh, and she's told me this, I'm not, you know, speaking out of school when I say this. She said, uh, that you know my stories would make her push her art to another level, and so we both kept kind of pushing each other without realizing we were doing it. Uh, the two sentence stories kind of goes back to uh, a thread on Reddit where folks and I end up seeing it on Facebook, and I did a bunch of them because I like to write and you know trying to come up with a complete narrative with two sentences is difficult. But there was a, a thread on Reddit talking about the scariest two sentence stories, and I think the one that ended up uh, winning. I mean, I don't know if there was like an actual contest, but the one that everyone kind of agreed was the scariest was the last man on earth sat alone in his house. And there was a knock on the door and it's, 
you know, I tried to capture that a little bit. I think my favorite one, I mean, I know my favorite one is uh, called The Muddy Boots, and I think it's, I, mean, I, I don't know if it's on par with that. That's up for you, up for, you know, the reader to decide. But it says, uh, I really hate when my husband leaves his muddy boots in the hallway. I don't mean to nag, but he was buried in them. Like, I just really like that. And then I had a bunch of short stories. I had released a uh, a book of short stories called Monsters in the Closet that I self-published. Um, I do have a couple other books that I self-published, but they are absolute garbage. Uh, look, Going back and looking at some of the stuff I've written 10, 12 years ago compared to what I've written now, it's absolute trash. And I think that's a testament to me attempting to get better and... You know, I, I tend not to promote myself that much, but with this, uh, I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. So I've kind of been pushing it more and more because I think I can tell good stories. And you know, with the with Monsters in the Closet, it was uh, flash fiction, so it's 500 words or less. You have to tell an entire story, and it's difficult, but it's fun as a writer trying to challenge yourself. Where it's like, okay, I have unlimited space i can just tell whatever story i want i can write a 1200 page novel it doesn't matter but when you really pigeonhole yourself and it's like okay you have 500 words you know you need a beginning a middle and end a climax a satisfying resolution it's challenging but it's a lot of fun and i think uh the way this book is set up with all the different styles of writing i think it really it fits people with a busy lifestyle so it's like i don't have time to read you know, this long novel. I mean, because it's about 150 pages, but there's, you know, the, the, the horror haikus, the two-sentence stories, the lists, you know, and each of those stories, I think the longest story might be like 10 pages, if that, but, you know, it's a lot of fun, and I wanted to kind of mix things up. You know, if you're, if you're looking at a book that's, the title is How Much Do You Tip an Exorcist, it can't be a standard cookie-cutter, uh, you know, book that you're going to pick up from anybody, you know? What drew you to the two-sentence stories? Um, that, like I was saying, is, uh, you know, like the Reddit thread about the, uh, you know, the last man on Earth. And I think part of it had to do with, can I tell a complete story with just two sentences? And I really got sucked into it. There's a whole bunch that didn't make it into this book uh that you know maybe will be in a, a another collection down the road but there's a whole bunch that didn't make it into this but i think it's for me it was the challenge of telling a complete story in only two sentences like you're 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 not using every tool at your disposal you know to explain what's going on and paint a, a word picture but at the same time you're using every weapon in your arsenal in order to complete this story in just Two sentences. You also have a section after that called Horror Hakus. What made you want to focus on the Japanese style of poems compared to traditional poems? Well, I mean, I guess that, you know, all depends on what your definition of traditional poems. I mean, are we looking at sonnets and, you know, with rhyming couplets like Shakespeare did, you know, quatrains, you know, there's all kinds of different stuff. But I think with haikus where you have the five syllables the seven syllables and the five syllables you know each line uh the three lines comprising of a total of 17 syllables that again was is another one of those things is like can i tell an entire story with just 
17 syllables. You know, it's kind of like the, uh, the two sentence stories. Can I tell a whole story in just two sentences? Um, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. It was challenging. Uh, you know, going back and forth. It's like, oh, I like this word better. And it's like, oh, you know, I, I can't use that word because now the sentence structure doesn't make sense. You know, like, uh, that one was, that was kind of difficult, but, Again, it was a lot of fun, and then getting to see the illustrations that Jeanette did to go along with some of these. Like, she did all new illustrations for this book. She kind of took a couple of, uh, you know, like, she kind of took the bones of stuff that she had done before. And like I was saying, with, like, my stuff that was garbage back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, her artwork was amazing back then, in 2015, when she was doing this. It's phenomenal now like if you consider phenomenal above amazing like she did such a great job she has improved greatly uh if you were able to see some of the stuff that she has done before and then to take the same things and you know turn them into uh you know make just grayscale drawings uh she was even nice enough to put uh myself and ashes into uh two of the of the drawings if you look under the haiku uh costume and the haiku daylight uh daylight she definitely drew that character is my wife ashes and costume is uh 100% me down to the fact that he's got a patch on his vest that says patsy on it which i didn't notice when she originally did it but i was like oh man she she put me in the thing like that's so cool but yeah for me i think it was more the challenge than the uh, than anything else was it like working with Jeanette andromeda on the book in trying to get your vision to how the artwork should look. I trust Jeanette with my work because she is such a talented artist. If you've ever seen my podcast logo or any of the other shirts that we've done, you know, like the uh, the the Von Nightmare Vineyards shirt where it's a it's a bunch of grapes, but it's all the grapes are different skulls or my my Patsy logo where it's kind of like the jaws thing but it's me coming up underneath a shark. I trusted her to take whatever I had done and, you know, apply her unique vision to it because there were a couple of things I was like, okay, this is what I would do. And then what she came up with, I was like, oh yeah, this is way better. This is way better than I even imagined. Like I can't draw at the same level as Jeanette. Like I can occasionally get something good to come out, but Jeanette is just light years ahead of me. And everyone's going to interpret things differently and like the way i was looking at a couple of things like there were a couple i had no clue what to do like you know for the uh the haiku gratuity where i got the name of the uh of the book from i had no clue how i was going to do that and she took it and ran with it and i was like you know what whatever she wants to do that's that's how it's going to be i mean obviously she you know she would say hey this is what i've got do you like it and there i don't think i rejected a single thing because i was like this is just absolutely fantastic, and uh, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to improve or change this. Like she is beyond talented, and uh, I'm I'm very lucky to have her as an illustrator. I noticed that this artwork in both the two sentence stories in horror haikus that fit each story in those sections. But when it came to the short stories, you only get the artwork between the title of each story. Why did you decide to scale back on the artwork in the short story sections 
to only the designs to the title cards. Well, part of that was, I mean, I wasn't even expecting the uh, the story header art that she did. Uh, that was something that she did on her own. She did not do these illustrations for free. Uh, she and I negotiated what she called a fair a fair deal. I think I should have paid her quadruple, uh, but I just simply did not have that much money. <laughs> um, she earned every every cent, and then to come up with ten extra drawings. There's a total of forty drawings when you count those uh, those story headers. Although she has said. Uh, in interviews that she next time she wants to illustrate the stories as well. But we, we also have agreed on compensation for whatever book sales. Uh, I'm going to give her a percentage of what, what I make because uh, what she did uh, and, and what I paid her for, I, she was grossly underpaid and I wish I had more money to give to her. And, you know, obviously I'm going to, as soon as I get uh, royalty checks, like I'm going to give her money and yeah, just seeing this art, like I said, with the horror haikus and the two sentence stories, like we, we, we talked about that a little bit where we did the horror haikus day thing and then it kind of evolved into the two sentence Tuesday. Um, so she had already done a lot of these, um, a lot of these drawings. There's one that she did in there that she definitely had to redo, uh, the one for cheat meal because there was a, a specific, uh, politician whose head was on the grill and she thought that might not be politically correct, although it might be something that all of us might be thinking. Uh, it might not be as politically correct to show a decapitated politician with their head on a grill in a uh, story about cannibalism. Uh, so she changed that a little bit. But she had already had, like I said, like the bones of what she wanted to do, and she redid them with her increased skill and her, uh, you know, in grayscale as opposed to color for uh, social media. And I think she did an absolutely amazing job. Each of the stories is around five to ten pages. What made you want to keep the stories to that length? Well, I think with with these types of stories, several of them... So I, I, I have uh, created in my head and in some uh, published works what I call the Riftverse, which is uh, an alternate version of Earth where there was an interdimensional rift and giant monsters of the Lovecraft variety have invaded and uh, this burst of energy came out and it's, it subsequently changed humans into like different categories like some uh, were given enhanced powers others were given you know just driven mad similar to the rage the rage infected uh, you know they're not zombies but the rage infected people of, uh, of uh, 28 and 20, 28 days and weeks later other people just became absolutely terrible and like all their worst inclinations kind of manifest to the forefront in addition to all these giant monsters that came everywhere. So I kind of was telling different stories from that universe uh, and they didn't need to be overly long because uh, they were going to be part of a larger narrative like um, several of the stories. Uh, Too Ugly for Heaven, um, Tiny White Will Punch Your Fucking Lights Out, I always get this one wrong because I say it in the wrong order. The Twistic Tragic Tale of Michael Ravenshadow, Roboctopus, Croctopus, and The Girl on the Train. Those all kind of take place in the same universe, like, and they're all different perspectives on different people when the rift happened. 
Uh, I have a couple other stories. One that was in last year's More Lore from the Mythos anthology that came out uh, in November of last year called The Shed, which is Lovecraftian body horror. And I have another story in Volume 2, which comes out on October 17th, called Scavengers. And then I have uh, another story that takes place in that universe coming out in another anthology that drops on Halloween called VHS Nightmares. So what I'm kind of doing is telling different stories from different parts of the world, you know, from different points of view of different people. And it doesn't need to be a long narrative. Like, a lot of these are self-contained you know, and you'll never see them again. Others, I kind of consider them origin stories, because I think, you know, the Raven Shadow story and the uh, Too Ugly for Heaven and uh, the Tiny White story, those are all going to be, those characters are going to be expanded upon at some point. And uh, those folks, speaking of uh, Trick or Treat Radio, those are all uh, characters inspired, or named after, I should say. They're not inspired by, because, you know, Raven Shadow is not a, a raving lunatic, and you know Dynamo doesn't you know run around killing people, and Tiny White is not you know, the owner of uh, a, a, a countrywide uh, chain of restaurants. But I just wanted to name these characters after those guys, kind of immortalize them uh, because they were so cool to me, and like we've become friends over the past you know seven years. But yeah, I, I just thought their characters were cool, and you know name somebody after them. You know what I mean? You know, you know what I'm saying. Yes. One of my favorite stories in the book is called The Librarian versus the Controller. How did you come up with that story? I am a fan of uh, riddles. So, you know, uh, Bilbo versus Gollum. Uh, that was a fun section of The Hobbit. Also, uh, for folks who are familiar with Stephen King's Dark Tower series... Uh, the, the the riddle contest with Blaine the Mono in uh, in Wizarding Glass uh, that one had a huge impact on me partly because I read The Wastelands and it ends with Let the contest begin and I was fortunate enough not to read these as they came out because I would have had to wait eight years to see the beginning of this contest but I had uh, unknown to me purchased Wizarding Glass at a uh, yard sale many, many years before. So as soon as I finished that, and I was like, oh my god, I need to know what happens next. I was like, oh shit, I have this book somewhere. And I tore apart my room looking for these books. And I found it. And I was able to read through the entire riddle contest. And the flaw in, you know, so many different, you know, uh, computer stories, you know, when there's a, a higher intelligence is if you contradict its programming and force it to, you know, make different decisions than it would normally make and, you know, kind of screw up its logic center. Uh, there's an episode of Futurama about that with uh, Robot Santa. Uh, <laughs> like, I put all those things together, and one of the, like, the main thrust of the joke or the, the, the logic problem was a, a thing I had read about uh, an explorer who got captured by cannibals and they would allow him to make one statement, and based on the statement, they would determine in which manner he would die. And so he made a statement, and he was allowed to leave because he thwarted their logic. And I was like, okay, how can I tell that story? I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's my least favorite of the stories that I've written in that book. It could have been fleshed out way more. What made you want to use all caps for the controller's dialogue in that story? To really illustrate 
Uh, I should have put it in italics too, but to really illustrate, you know, how loud because you know you have this young woman, uh, Lena, which is short for Evangelina. I never say that, but it's short for Evangelina. She is standing in the middle of this room, and there is sound coming from everywhere, and it's just. It's a, another way of the controller, who is this, you know, sentient Skynet-like big brother type of uh, AI system that has taken over the world. It's just another way to uh, intimidate or, or, or show their superiority by completely dwarfing, you know, the uh, whoever happens to be talking to the controller at the time, you know, just bombarding them with sound. Finally, you end your book with a couple of lists. Angry superpowers and awesome ideas that the sci-fi channel should totally turn into films. What made you come up with the idea to include lists in this book? Well, I had, I had made one of these lists on um, like a Facebook post or something a while ago and some people were coming up with some like really interesting powers, so I was trying to come up with some fun ones too. And then so I was like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the ones that I did and just keep them. And, you know, maybe some point I'll use them." The uh, awesome ideas that sci-fi should totally turn into films. Um, I think that these would be fun asylum films, and you know, like they're not out of the realm of possibility. Like I could see a way of doing each and every one of these in a way where, you know, the, the characters involved could at least take them seriously. I mean, if they're ever looking for an idea, you know, I, I've got lots of them and, uh, I, I work cheap. So I have an idea what sci-fi channel should do. What's that? I'll make that pitch right now. Five hardcore horror fans are kidnapped by a mysterious movie producer who forces them to watch some of the worst remakes of all time. And they find out, as these films continue to go on, that the person that kidnapped them is none other than Jason Blum! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I oh, had to get that out there. <laughs> that sounds too real. Yeah. Because I just think sometimes he just does stuff to insult hardcore horror fans' intelligence. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you know, it almost seems like he's trying to bring it down from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have a question for you, Mr. Anthony T. Yes. And you said you have the book uh, handy. Yes. So what I would like you to do is I would like you to open the book and to the first page that says itemized invoice on it. Yes. And see if you can uh, check out the cool Easter eggs that I put into that into that invoice. Uh, if you take a look at some of the things, see how much you, you pick up on. Because this itemized invoice uh, is specifically dedicated... To the hardcore horror fan. Ah, okay. Exorcism, 24 hours. <coughs> it's going to be in the Exorcist Connections, one of these things. Can't figure it out because I've never, never seen it. that film. Oh, you've never, alright, so I didn't know you've never seen it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through and I'm going to walk you through what these are, okay? So the invoice date, 
and the invoice number, uh, 1226 in 1973. That is the day that uh, The Exorcist appeared in theaters. Okay. The bill from Karis and Marin, those are the two priests. Bill to Chris McNeil, and that's the address that they had in the, in the movie. And so I went and I checked what the tax rate is for that address, and it's 8.25%. Wow. So 8.25% on a subtotal of $615.24. Do you want to take a guess as to what that comes out to? A lot of money. $666. Uh-oh. <laughs> and then you'll notice that the tip section is blank. But uh, What can you do? <laughs> so I let everyone make their own choice as to how much you would tip an exorcist. I've seen The Exorcist 3, but that's about it. Is that the one with Patrick Ewing as the Angel of Death? Oh, yes. I saw that on the last drive-in. That was like the worst week out of season two. I've seen I've seen all of them. I think there's the five total? Because there's two prequels? That's like the only Exorcist film I've ever seen. I have the original Exorcist at home. It's just I never get time to see that film. I think you should make time to see that one because it's a it's a classic and it's terrifying. I read the book, and you know what's crazy is the guy who wrote the book, William Peter Blatty, wrote it because he had been working in Hollywood and he was typecast because he kept writing scripts for Pink Panther movies, and they were like, "Oh, he just writes comedy," and he's like, "I'll show you guys," and then he wrote the extra. <laughs> Like, well, way to break out of that box set, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely uh, stepping outside your comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back. <laughs> Let's get back on track. <laughs> Sorry. Not a problem. The book is being released by Source Point Press. Yes. How did that deal come about? Because they're usually known for comics and graphic novels. So. At Scaricon last year, where you and I met for the first time uh, during the uh, uh, podcast awards, um, we had a booth right near uh, comic writer Ben Goldsmith. And Ben ended up joining us on our show. He's got a huge personality, very talented writer, uh, super funny, just like awesome to be around. Like you can't be in a bad mood around this guy. He's, he's just awesome. Uh, we ran into him at uh, Terrificon at uh, Mohegan Sun later that year and we were talking it was it was his birthday too he gave us some cake and I was talking about oh yeah you know I, I put a book out a while ago you know I never talk about it you know I probably should and he's like oh I didn't know you were a writer we have a prose section at source point and we're always looking for stuff you know like it would have to be at least 150 pages and I'm like well I've got this thing that you know, I've been working on I call it you know how much do you tip an exorcist and he's like oh my god that title I love that title He's like, oh, are you going to be at Boston Fan Expo? And I was like, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to make it to that one. And he's like, well, what about Rock and Shock? I'm like, yeah, we don't, we don't miss Rock and Shock. Like, we'll be there. And he's like, all right, well, uh, this guy Josh is going to be there. And Josh is like, you know, the head guy in charge who, who you know, decides what, what we're going to publish and what we're not. So, you know, get something together and, you know, make a pitch to him. 
So I had never made a book pitch before. I had no idea. Like everything that I had done was like self-published. I mean, my first two books, Cycle of the Hunter and Mist and Shadow, it's essentially, you know, it was a, a publishing company that were like, yeah, just send us your book. We'll, you know, we'll publish it. We don't care. Whatever. Like they didn't do any marketing or anything. And then when the books didn't sell, they're like, yeah, your $20 book from some guy no one ever heard of isn't selling. So we're going to start charging uh, 25 and $30 for it. I'm like, yeah, that'll help. You know, you can get a Stephen King book for seven ninety nine, but yeah, someone's gonna pay thirty dollars for my book. Okay, so I, uh, I, I, again, not knowing what to do or how to do it, I uh, polished everything up, put everything together as, uh, you know, uh, as best as I could, and then I printed it out on regular printer paper and had like three hundred sheets of paper that I gave this guy in like a, a little binder, and I was like, "Here's my book." It weighed like twelve pounds, and I'm like, "I have I have no idea what I'm doing." I'm like, "I've never done this, but like Ben told me to talk to you, so I'm talking to you. This is my book," and he's like, "Well, what do you call it?" And I'm like, "How much do you tip an exorcist?" And he's like, "I could sell it on that title alone," and so. He loved the drawings that Jeanette did. He likes it. He was like reading through some of the stuff. He's like, this is excellent. He goes, I love this. Like I, he's like, I have so many things going through my head right now. Uh, yeah, let's do it. We'll, we'll do it. So that's how it happened, you know, because, uh, we made friends with Ben. Ben pointed us in the right direction. And, you know, that's, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And Ben was nice enough to, to purchase my book and, and, you know, promote it. So I, I appreciate everything that he's done for me as well. And I make sure I give him credit every time because, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, without Ben and without Jeanette, it doesn't matter how good what I've written is. Jeanette's artwork takes it to a whole other level. Like, you see the artwork and you want to see what's written below. Like, what does this have to do with this? Oh, my God, this artwork is amazing. I've had two different people, independent of each other, say, I want this tattoo, uh, the, for the story uh, Refusal, both my wife and uh, my friend Alyssa both want that tattooed because uh, her art is that good. Any other f- future projects that you have on the horizon, writing-wise? Well, I touched on a couple of things uh, really briefly earlier. Um, I have uh, a story called Scavengers that's coming out on um, the 17th of October which happens to be Ash's Von Nightmare's birthday. Uh, it's called More Lore from the Mythos 2. It's a Lovecraft collection. It's an anthology, and I'm in there. There are some amazing writers in there, um, Steve Van Sampson and Trisha Woldridge, who are phenomenal. Um, Steve was in the first volume of that, uh, More Lore Volume 1, uh, with me as well. Uh, and Steve and I are actually in another anthology that comes out on Halloween called VHS Nightmares, it's a, a story, it's basically an anthology of a bunch of people who are just like, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a late night trip to the local video store or, you know, something that you rented that wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be. Uh, that's kind of where mine goes. Mine's about three young girls that, uh, you know, they're in high school. It takes place in like 1991. So they're in high school and they rent a bunch of movies. And one of them is called Lesbian Cannibal Chainsaw Quinceanera 3, The Choppening. Just love that title. And I've had people tell me, like, I would watch that movie. And I'm like, yeah, I would, too. <laughs> like, um, But they all watch a movie and, like, some crazy shit happens with the tape and they don't know what to do about it. And uh, it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Um, but I've got that. I'm working on, uh, 
actually turning a couple of scripts into movies. I mean, I'm sorry, scripts that I've written into short stories and vice versa. Uh, I actually do have something that I'm, I'm working on that I'm trying to expand a little bit and uh, actually pitch as a movie script. So fingers crossed on that one. But yeah, I'm just I'm just going to keep writing. Uh, I mean, I write different articles for uh, my website, ThrowItOnThursdayPodcast.com. I just did a review of uh, Anonymous Killers, the movie that dropped on uh, October 6th. Um, I do a women in horror section on that. I write for womeninhorror.net. Um, I write sports articles. You know, there's all there's all kinds of stuff. You know, it's you know, like you were saying earlier uh, off air, like how busy we all get. Like I do throw it out Thursday and I do uh, shark bites and I do the uh, the loudest sports show and I do indie creator spotlight and I work full time and I'm trying to watch movies and, and write and, you know, and, and once in a while see see my wife. So that's <laughs> that's the goal. Where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me uh, at the aforementioned throwdownthursdaypodcast.com. Uh, but you can follow me um, on Twitter, at Patrick Rahal. On Instagram, same thing. You can follow the show on Twitter, at TD Thursday Pod. Uh, Throw Down Thursday Podcast on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, under PJ Rahal. And uh, I think that's about it for social media. Patrick, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast again. Oh, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to me about my book and, and help spread awareness of it. And uh, thank you very much for, for purchasing it. And I will come on your show anytime because I love chatting with you. I think you're a phenomenal human being, and uh, I always enjoy your thoughts on horror. Thank you very much. Have a good day and stay safe. Thank you. You too. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer and they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. Hey guys, this is Stephen Christina. I'm the founder, owner, creator, and host of Super Retro Throwback Reviews. Are you looking for the best movie reviews, music reviews, video game reviews, and Comic-Con coverage all around? Well then look no further. Definitely check out Super Retro Throwback Reviews on YouTube and our new audio podcast, the new and improved Super Retro Throwback Reviews audio files version 2.0 on the following media distributors. Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Pass is over, John. Pass is something new and improved. Welcome back to EMTT's Horror Show. 
I am here with the founder and president of Fright Rags, Benjamin Scrivens. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. How did you first discover the horror genre? Uh, I saw Halloween uh, on October 30th, 1981. I was four years old. So that was my first introduction. Um, it was just on TV, and I was at we were at a family friend's house, and I was bored, and my parents basically told me to go watch TV, and I went over and turned it on, and that movie came on, and I just, I, I had never, I mean, being four, I had never seen anything like that before, and just since then, I've always loved horror movies. I mean, you know, I didn't, it's not like I went and started seeing everything I could, but I mean, I, I just wanted to see more of, of that type of thing. It just amazed me at the time, so I just, I don't know, from then on, I just have always had, had the love of the genre. What are some of your favorite films? I mean, Halloween is absolutely still my favorite film of all time, horror or non-horror. But uh, in terms of other horror movies, I mean, it's a lot of the classics. I mean, Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw, obviously. Uh, but some of the other ones that I like, you know, Silver Bullet has always been one of my favorite movies. Um, even Trick or Treat, which is obviously a little bit more recent, but that's up there with one of my favorites. Um, of course, you know, Friday 13th, Nightmare on Elm Streets. I mean, I've been always been more of a slasher guy. I mean, I love, you know, zombie films and, and, and giallo films and things like that. But I tend to gravitate towards slashers. Like, I love Slumber Party Massacre and just anything, like the burning, you know. Like, I'll, I'll just eat it up if it's somebody in a mask killing people. Besides being the founder and president of Fright Rags, you're also a graphic designer. What made you want to get into that field? Um, actually, you know, I've, I've always been sort of creative and, and I guess artistic my whole life. I've always liked drawing and things and I, I never knew what graphic design was, I guess. I mean, I knew kind of what it was, but I just never really knew about it as a career. And I learned a little bit about it more in high school and back then free sort of computer, um, manipulation in terms of like Photoshop and InDesign or, or even Quark, which is all these layout programs and things. We had to do everything by hand, and that was hard for me because I, I, as, as detailed as I can be, I can also be very sloppy in some other ways. So it was always like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. But when I discovered designing in Photoshop and, and making logos and like the actual user design, you know, as we got into the internet age and, and websites started popping up, I found that it was an interesting blend of psychology and sociology, and basically, I guess in some ways, you know, manipulating information and in imagery to create something that people liked, you know, like they would see it and it was visually appealing, but you could articulate why it was visually appealing. It wasn't just like, oh, I like that logo and and that's fine, but why? And then you start realizing, oh, it's because blue is a soothing color and it's because these, you know, I really liked those elements to it. So that's, that's kind of why I started getting into it even more and then took it in college. What made you want to translate your love for horror and graphic design into the horror merchandising business? Um, it was really just this blend of wanting to be creative. I mean, this was back in 2003, and I was I was working at a job that I liked, but I was, you know, I had some free time, and I was a little kind of bored. And also, I, w I would spend a lot of time on horror websites or, or message boards, specifically message boards with people that made replicas, like, a replica Freddy glove or a Jason mask, or of course, you know, my favorite Michael Myers mask. And I thought, wow, that's just so cool that people are using this creativity to make things in horror movies that I love. And I thought, what can I do? And I've always 
sort of been interested in quirky t-shirts. And so I was like, well, I don't, I don't really own any horror t-shirts. Why not? And I kind of looked some up online and I, I didn't see anything that really spoke to me. So I thought, well, I know how to design and I, I have a little bit of a screen printing background. So at least I understand a bit of the process. So I just thought, why not just make some horror t-shirts? Were there any other reasons to why you also wanted to stop Fright Rags? I mean, it was really to connect with people. I mean, I, again, I was such a fan of the genre and I thought if I could just, just make something cool. And so basically what, when I started designing my own stuff under the permission or with permission from a friend of mine who owned one of the bigger forums at the time that I was a part of, you know, I posted my designs and when people gave me positive feedback, like, oh, I'd wear that on a t-shirt. It was really one of the first times in my life that I had the potential to create something that someone liked enough to maybe to, to pay for and then then wear it. And, and, and that just was such a trip. So to me, it was like that was so cool. I never thought of it as a way to um, make money like, oh, I was going to make this my career. I mean, I always wanted that, but I never knew that was going to actually happen. I was just in love with the idea of making something that other people liked and wanted to buy. What made you want to set your base of operations in Rochester, New York, compared to a big city? Well, I mean, this is where I was born and raised. And so I've, you know, I, I grew up here. Um, I'm, you know, where I'm at right now, I'm in my house right now, but I'm, you know, two miles away from where I grew up. So I, you know, my wife and I, we decided to stay here because our family is here and we, you know, she grew up here as well. So I never, you know, with the internet, the great thing about the internet is I didn't have to go to LA or New York or any other big city to, to, because we, we're online only. So I can service the, I mean, we can service the entire world right from Rochester. And that's awesome because we ship worldwide and knowing that I can still be around my family and be in the town that I grew up with. I mean, I, it's great to be driving by or riding my bike by the places that I saw the movie, this one movie for the first time or rented all my movies as a kid. Like it, there's still a nice connection to that in my childhood. On the uh, Wikipedia page, when I was doing research, I found out that you put $600 of your own money for the first run of Fright Rag shirts. What made you want to do that? Um, well, it was a leap of faith. You know, I was, I posted a couple designs on my friend's forum and, you know, people were saying that they would, that they, they, they expressed interest in, in wearing them as a t-shirt. And the only, you know, the only way I figured out I could do that is like, I need to just buy a bunch of t-shirts and make them available for sale. So at the time, um, this was the only time I had done this, but um, my very first order was done on a website called customink.com. And, you know, it was only they were really basic shirts, but it was still very pricey. It was like 10 bucks a shirt. And so I was like, well, let's order 20 of each design. So, you know, 600 bucks later. And I remember sitting there like, oh, my God, I don't it was on my credit card. It wasn't money that I actually had. I'd have to pay it back because it was on my credit card. I didn't know if I could. You know, I didn't know if I was going to sell anything. So. I'd never, you know, I'd never been in business before. I didn't know anything about business. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to try this out. I'd made my own website. I need to have a way for people to buy these things. So I just clicked buy now and check out and got the shirts and, and started there. Was the success of that $600 made you want to expand Fright Rags into a business? Yeah, it, you know, it happened 
really slowly, you know, I mean, I, I did that first run and people were ordering them and, you know, the money that I made, it's not like I went out and just spent it, you know, I just kept it in a separate account because I knew ultimately I wanted to do more. So I was like, oh, well, I can reprint this one design or I can make new designs. And at the time I found a printer that was right around the corner from my job at the time. He was working out of his house and he actually printed all of our shirts from that moment uh, after that first order up until I think 2008. So the first five years, excuse me. And so he, you know, he was able to work with me on pricing and, and ideas and things. So it was really the love of the creativity. So I just kept putting the money back into more T-shirts or more designs or more ideas. Um, and, and, you know, listen, there'd be like weeks sometimes where I wouldn't get one order. And, you know, and I'd be out there, you know, posting on forums or doing whatever. And it just took a lot of time to build. But during that time, I was just so happy to be working on something that somebody liked somewhere. What made you decide to start selling or licensing horror properties for your business? Well, in the beginning, you know, I started out, I knew that I was, you know, repurposing characters, popular characters such as Michael Myers and Jason and things. I knew that that doing that without officially licensing them was I could get caught and I could potentially get fined or sued or whatever. I knew that that was a, a liability and I knew that was something that if I was going to continue doing this, I'd have to work in somehow to get licensing. But it's like a chicken and egg thing. I think, you know, I was way too small. I did not have the money to get into licensing. I did not have the know-how or any of this uh, experience or knowledge. But so I, I just kept doing things unlicensed until, I mean, to be fair, I mean, my first license was like within two months of me getting starting up. And that was a very small license. Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3, which were some of my favorite movies anyway. But it was it was uh, very uncomplicated, it was a very simple license to get because other companies can just get, you know, 20 page contracts, things like that. So I, in the beginning, I always knew I wanted to license and I always reached out to companies because, again, you don't know what you don't know. So I would just reach out and see what they could do. But it took several years before I started getting, you know, another license that was a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger than that. And it just just this process of kind of chipping away at it. And as soon as we had a few under our belt, we could get bigger ones. And as soon as we had those ones, we could get even bigger ones until, you know, we were able to work with all the properties for the most part that we've ever wanted to. And I just knew that ultimately that was going to be the way forward if I wanted to be successful. Now, what is the process in getting a license for something like Sleepaway Camp or Halloween? So, again, it's first of all, it's just finding who owns the movie. And that can be a studio or it can be a person. Like in the case of Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3, it was a per, like just a person. And I forgot how I got in touch with them, but it was a very simple email back and forth contract. And, and that was it. With something like Halloween or, you know, like say like Jaws, for example, which is owned by Universal Studios, that's a much more detailed process. I mean, you you find a contact, you try to, you know, first of all, get them to reply to you. Sometimes it takes a long time. And then they're going to want you to send a proposal. And that proposal will include how long you want the contract, which is generally about two years the royalty rate you're willing to uh, to to give them per item you sell and an advance against that royalty. So you have to pay money up front and that can range from, 
you know, again, depending on the property, it can range from nothing down to thousands and thousands of dollars up front before you even make one product. And there's a lot of, you know, again, some, especially with a company like Universal, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of, um, things you have to go through. I mean, these contracts are 20, 30 pages long and there's a lot of back and forth and, but, and then once you get the deal, it doesn't mean you can do anything you want. You know, things still have to get approved by them and there's usually some strict processes for that. And you can't even, a lot of times use people's likenesses. Again, depends on the movie. With Halloween, we can, but with something like Jaws, we can't. We can't use anybody's face unless we get permission from that that person or their estate. So every film is different. Every company is different. Which studios are the easiest to deal with? Right now, I mean, we, we have great relationships with pretty much everybody we work with because most of the studios we've been working with now, we've actually had relationships for many years. So we've gotten very comfortable um, and we know the people there and, and you, you develop relationships sort of with them. You know, we're very fortunate, especially, I mean, and and, and if I, to be a little biased um, because it is my favorite movie, but, you know, like a movie like Halloween, we're very fortunate to be working with directly with the studio. The nice thing about that is like any other situation, if I wanted to do, if I had an idea for a product, but it's not on our license, like we didn't ask for that category there's a lot of back and forth to be able to add that category to our license. Whereas other properties, we can kind of just talk to them and say, Hey, would you mind us if we did this item? And they'd be like, Oh yeah, go for it. And it's just so much easier. I mean, they, again, they still have to approve it, but just the ability to, to have an idea and approach some of these companies and have them say, yeah, go ahead and try it is great. Cause then we can test the market. Has there been a property that you've, love to get your hands on but haven't yet yes um so basically the one major studio we've been trying to get into is warner brothers um because they own they own many things um among them obviously uh, popular ones are friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street so those two i would love to work with um on an official basis but they also have you know the shining Beetlejuice, Gremlins, and there's a bunch of things they have that I would love to. And we've talked to them on many occasions over the last several years, and they're just, their business model is just a little bit different. So it just hasn't been the right uh, timing and opportunity yet. Uh, But we're hoping that that changes eventually so we can can work with them. What have been some of your best selling properties? Um, you know, it's, you know, Halloween does great. Uh, the original film, anything Halloween related always seems to do well. And we're very happy with that because it's classic. Jaws, as I mentioned earlier, that actually is a really good one. Elvira is a great property to work with. She's awesome. And, and I'm glad that something like, you know, she's been around a long time, but she is just as popular as ever, which is, is really cool. I'll tell you one thing that's been a great relationship and seller for us over the last few years is Joe Bob Briggs, who hosts The Last Drive-In on Shudder. We um, befriended him before that um, because I was always a fan of Monster Vision growing up. And we were able to do some Monster Vision shirts and some shirts based on him even before The Last Drive-In came out. And then he had this humongous resurgence with Shudder's Last Drive-In, which is amazing. And and we were able to, to work with him on doing merchandise and we've expanded that merchandise into action figures and things like that. And I tell you, people just love it. And I'm so grateful because I've, you know, I've always loved Joe Bob. And I'm, it's just great to see him having this renaissance um, later in his career. How did the deal with Joe Bob Briggs come about? 
So I, you know, it's funny. I always have this list of like ongoing like ideas that I'd like to to do. And Monster Vision was always on that list. And one of our main artists, Justin Osborne, reached out to me once. And we always have him working on something. And he's like, hey, have you ever thought about doing a Monster Vision shirt? And I was like, dude, like, I would love to. And so we were, I was trying to find his contact, Joe Bob's, because we wanted to bring him out to Rochester. We do a, um, well, pre-COVID, I guess, we would do a monthly screening um, we call Saturday Night Rewind, where we show a, like a cult classic film, usually horror, and uh, on film usually where when we can, and have, you know, just one night a month, and it was just a lot of fun at this local theater, and we would try to get people to Skype in interviews or come here in person, and I wanted to build a Monster Vision set, so like the replica of his trailer and the and the TV and the, uh, the the lawn chair and everything, and have him do an intro for a movie, Monster Vision style, and then we would show the movie. And so he ended up coming out here to do The Warriors. This was September, no, October of 2016. So we had him out here for a weekend, and that's when we debuted our Monster Vision shirts and things. So that's really kind of the beginning of our relationship working together because we had him come out here to do that and, and did the Monster Vision shirts at the same time. So we've been working with him ever since. One of the things that you've been doing lately is selling out of limited runs of Joe Bob Briggs action figures. What made you want to get into action figures? Um, it was it was kind of a happenstance between a friend of mine who used to work for a couple of the action figure companies, um, Mattel and a couple other companies, and it's Sort of a long story short, I had met his girlfriend out in L.A. when I was there um, a few years ago having some meetings and things. And she's like, oh, my boyfriend grew up near you. He grew up in a town called Newark that's about 45 minutes away from Rochester. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then he contacted me separately. He goes, oh, I think, you know, my girlfriend, she works at Live Nation because we were talking to them about licensing. I'm like, oh, yeah. So anyway, over the course of, you know, oh, and he was actually back here um for uh to visit his family this is over the holidays this is i think two years ago three years ago and we had dinner to to finally meet in person and we were talking and he's like listen i'm starting up my own company uh would you want to work together and i said yeah what do you what are you doing you know what, you know because he's doing action figures and like what kind of figures and we talked about it and we thought about some ideas that we could work on together and you know again going back to how easy it is to add things to licenses you know joe bob we work with him directly so it's like hey Maybe there's an option to do a Joe Bob figure. No one's ever done it. We would be, you know, we could do it. I can talk to him and his manager, and it shouldn't be a problem. And we did, and they were up for it. So that just seemed like the, a good one to start out with. Now, I did not anticipate the demand. Uh, and that's, you know, the red, the, the blue shirt figure that we released, we had committed to a thousand. Um, again, because we can't, we can't just hold thousands in inventory i mean it's a lot of money tied up it's a lot of space we just can't order thousands and thousands of these things and hope they sell you know it's just not we just not what we can do so you know we committed to a thousand knowing that okay maybe that we'll sell through these and, and it'll be a good test well a thousand of them sold out within 40 minutes so we knew we had to redo it but we also knew that people were buying it because it was limited edition so we just changed the color of a shirt to a red shirt and opened it up for a longer pre-order period where we could add on to our existing order and we were able to sell a bunch more. And then we just recently quietly sort of uh, surprisingly announced the Halloween version that was a limited run on, on the 
uh, Halloween hideaway. So it was, um, it's been fun and, and we're, we've got more in the works. You know, we're working on Darcy for next year. A lot of people are asking for Darcy. Well, that's in the works and that will be out next year. And, um, we're also working on them for some other properties too. So there are plans for other properties besides the last drive in, in the future in regards to action figures. Yes. And, and it's, it's too early to say what now, but I, I can say that we've got several planned. If it all goes well, several are planned for 2021 that I am super excited about. Again, I, for those, I can't go into detail, but I can say that for me personally, it's like, I'm I'm excited for them, so I'm, I'm really hoping other people are as well. Now, back to shirts. Explain how one of the shirts gets made from start to completion. So, generally, when we have a license, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we have a few artists that we work with kind of exclusively. So, Justin, who I mentioned before, is sort of a, a flagship art of, of, of ours that we, we know, like, usually when we get a, especially a bigger property, we want him to do his his thing with it but we also work with kyle crawford and a few other people so we'll sit around and kind of think about what makes sense to do for this property so i guess i'll just use jaws again for an example you know we're like okay we can't use people's faces and we can use this art and we can do this so sometimes we'll just go to the artist and say hey here's what you can and can't do come up with some concepts and they'll come back to us and if we like them and we think they, they're in within the parameters of the license, we'll send it to um, the studio and see if they approve it. And then we can continue on to the final stages, um, wh- whether it's the the next stage usually is then the colors and then the final design. And we, we have to go through a lot of stages of approvals. In some cases, again, the easier ones, we can show them a final piece if we know we're not, you know, we're not doing anything that is, is not within the, the parameters of license and, and we should be good to go. Once it gets approved by the rights holder, then we can go into production. And, and, and many times we do print these ahead of time because we want to be able to ship them, you know, right when, when they're released. You know, we've run into some issues recently because things either sell out or, or just in higher demand. So we have to end up having to put on pre-order. But we send the artwork to our printer and then our printer actually separates. They have to separate each color out of, of the design. So what you might see as a fully painted piece has to actually separate out into individual colors. And, and especially from our more complex ones, that can end up being 12 to 14 individual colors that are being printed. And they have to make a screen for each one of those and match those colors up. And so we get a digital proof that we sign off on okay, it's going to look like this and then they can run it on press and then we get the shirts and our printer is two miles down the road from us. We work very closely with them. If there's any issues or anything we need to check on, I'll just go down there and go on press and see what they look like. And they'll tweak the colors right there for me and we can kind of go back and forth. And then if I sign off on the right one, then I'll just go ahead with that. And then we get the shirts and, and put them up for sale. How long does it take to make an average shirt? It's, it, again, it depends on the approval process. I mean, if we and and the artist, I mean, there are times where an art might take two weeks, approval might take another two weeks, and then we can get it printed in two weeks. So that's like what six weeks from initial concept to final design, and that's I mean that varies. I mean, there are some times where 
we're waiting for approvals for a month or two. Sometimes the artist comes up with a concept and a final design. It gets approved that day. And we're sitting on it for a little while because we haven't scheduled the release for like, cause we're trying for like a month. Cause we, we, we schedule as far in advance as we can. I mean, I've, I've got almost all of 2021 planned right now. I mean, at least for the most part, idea wise. And then, you know, the first three months we've got nailed down a little bit more than say the second quarter or third quarter, but, and things always move around. I mean, we can have everything nailed down on our end, but we might end up being late on approvals or something might happen and things that are out of our control, then we have to, we have to be flexible enough to move things around, which we do all the time. I mean, I can literally on my end plan everything out because of the licenses we have and the artists we want to use. I can schedule everything and then end up having to change it. But so we can get something done really quick or sometimes it just takes a long time, but usually it's because it's out of our control. Have Fright Rags shirts appeared at other stores? Yes. So we've, in the past, we've worked at, uh, we've worked with Hot Topic I worked with early on. Um, they sold a few of our designs and that kind of cooled off for a while. Um, but in the, in recent years, we've sold to Hot Topic and Box Lunch. We've actually had a few shirts this year in Spencer's. Even with COVID, they are, we've been selling really good a couple of our designs and we've been in talks with doing more for Hot Topic and Spencer's for next year. Um, those are our two biggest wholesale in terms of, you know, biggest exposure. Everybody else, we don't do a lot of wholesale. I mean, in fact, we do very, very little wholesale and we like it that way. We like doing it direct to consumer. There are some mom and pop shops. There's a few shops like in, in, uh, Salem, Massachusetts and in, in, in LA that carry some of our stuff, but we don't actively solicit those too much because we honestly, we are very busy with what we have going on. And it's, it, it can be hard to manage. We're, you know, we're a small team. We're only eight people. It's not, it's, it's not, it's, we're just not a huge, huge operation where we're, we can manage all these things. With things like Spencer's and Hot Topic, we work with a third party company that can do a lot of the heavy work. So we're not printing and full, cause with, with those companies, you have to not only print it, but you have to fold it, put the size tags on it, put the price stickers on it. You have to box them in a certain way. I and mean, there's a huge process you have to go through. There's no way we could do that. So we work with another printer that can handle all that for us um, because we just don't have the bandwidth. In fact, some of the things we've been doing recently, like the action figures and other things, we've had to have our t-shirt printer to help fulfillment. We've had, I've had my parents, I mean, I've filled up my van several times to bring orders and product over to my parents to fill these Joe Bob figure orders because we don't have the bandwidth or the space or the people to do it. Besides shirts, I also found on your site that you sell trading cards. How did that happen? As I've seen trading cards for such properties as Child's Play and Night of the Living Dead on your site. Yeah, so again, a lot of these ideas come about when we're kind of just talking amongst ourselves internally as a, you know, it's just as a company and I'll see something and, you know, as a, for example, for the trading cards, I grew up loving trading cards, but I wasn't a sports fan, so I didn't collect baseball cards, but I liked the Fright Flicks cards and I like, of course, Garbage Fell Kids and, um, Mars Attacks and, and any other movie cards I could get my hands on, like Jaws or, or Dick Tracy or something. And so I, I was thinking one day and, I, and we were probably just talking. I was like, you know, no one's ever done trading cards for evil dead. 
or Halloween or Night of Living Dead. Or I, well, I, I take that back. People have done them for Night of Living Dead. But my point was I wanted them to be the old school cards. So part of what started the idea was I found literally the one person in the country that could do these wax wrappers like they used to be in this, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. Because now everything is, you know, that kind of foil wrap and it's all really high quality cards and all this stuff. I wanted to go old school. I wanted to have that cardboard back, you know, everything. I wanted the gum too, but unfortunately, uh, FDA prevents you from putting the gum in these things now. But, um, I wanted it to look and feel like it came out when the movie came out. So like Halloween, I want these things to look and feel like they came out in 1978. I want that. Flexo printing on the wrappers where it's not completely lined up. I wanted, you know, I just wanted them to ooze authenticity. And that's what we stri- we've strived to create. I didn't want to do just trading cards. I didn't want to just make trading cards. I wanted to make vintage style wax wrap trading cards because I just felt that would just be so cool. And, and luckily they've been received really well. I, I just, I've been really thrilled with in, in, the thing is, trading cards are very complex to do. There's a lot of things I had to learn. And, of course, there's a lot of um, issues with licensing and, again, using images from the movie and likenesses. So, unfortunately, I wasn't – we weren't – we are not able to do all of the ones that I've always wanted to do in terms of, you know, there's some properties where it's just impossible. There's just no way we could do it because we don't – we're not allowed to. But we've been able to do them for amazing properties, like again, Halloween, Night Living Dead, and we in uh, Evil Dead, Chucky. We've got more coming too, so we definitely are able to work on uh, on some great, great properties, and we've got a couple uh, awesome ones coming up. Besides trading cards, Fright Rags also sells posters, pins, hats, lounge pants, and socks. What made you decide to branch out besides shirts? Well, I think, you know, I used to think, you know, you can only have so many shirts, although I see some of our customers, they have like literally over a hundred of our shirts. But, you know, as again, I'm, it's funny to say, I'm not only the president, but I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, a user of our products, right? So as much as I love t-shirts, you know, when people come home from work, they just want to relax, so they end up getting into their comfy pants. Well, why not get into some comfy uh, horror pants? And my wife had bought me some uh, these lounge pants several years ago that I legitimately were the most comfy pants that I've ever worn. They're just these amazing that I would just want to wear them all the time. And I thought, well, uh, I would love to wear these with like Halloween on them or House of Thousand Corpses or something. So I found a company that could do it. Socks, same thing. Like there's a lot of people that can't wear our t-shirts out in public, you know, at their job or whatever. I've seen people like in like security or or police officer uniforms where obviously they can't wear uh, a Team Wolf shirt or whatever, but they can wear socks because they're covered up. So they can still show their love of of movies and the genre in other ways. So it's really just taking what we like and seeing if there's a way we can express it, ex- express the genre in, into these other items and categories that make sense. And it, again, it's, it always seems, want, I always want it to make sense. Like, I don't want to get into something just to get into it. I want to kind of see a bigger picture and be like, oh yeah, I can totally understand how that could fit. You also do conventions, right? Yeah, before COVID, we would, we would do conventions about four times a year. 
Now, what conventions would you usually go to? So Monster Mania in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey is, is definitely the one we hit up the most. I mean, that's twice a year. That's generally in March and August. And then we do Horror Hound in Cincinnati in March. Um, we were going to attend Texas Sprightmare this year, obviously. Um, uh, COVID had other other ideas. And we are slated to do it next year. Obviously, we'll see what happens. And so those are the ones that we frequent. I mean, we did the Halloween 40, 40th anniversary a few years ago, which was amazing. That was in L.A. We do what we can. Again, you know, we're being this smaller crew that we are and, and, and generally pretty busy. It's, it is hard for us to to take the time out because we have to drive, you know, to wherever we're going usually, which takes, you know, some time, an extra day or two. And But we love being out and, and seeing our friends and seeing customers and stuff. So it's 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 great to do when we can do it. But unfortunately, sometimes time just doesn't allow us to get out to uh, many more. What products does Fright Rags have upcoming in the future? Well, we've got some new things in the works. You know, we had just done a Halloween lunchbox, which sold really well. So we've got a couple other lunchboxes in the works for next year. We've got more action figures and um, even these Nanoforce little army men we did. We've got another one in the works for that. More, you know, sooner we've got another collection for Silent Night, Deadly Night coming up. That'll be coming up on Black Friday. That will basically be our last release of the year because we've got um, we've got a big sale coming up, and generally Black Friday orders tend to take us a while to get through. We we are usually pretty slammed, so we want to just you know make sure that we've got the time to fill them. So we decided to have everything kind of come out on Black Friday, but we've got a really cool Silent Night Deadly Night sweater coming out. It's like a full-on like ugly sweater. It's not like a sweatshirt with print on it. Like it's it's a full-on custom sweater that we're doing which I'm pretty excited about. Is the Black Friday sale that's upcoming the only sale you do all year? No, we generally do other sales. This year we did not have a chance to do any other sales because honestly, this year has been, I mean, again, going <laughs> It's been an anomaly for everybody in, in many ways, but we didn't know what to expect when COVID sort of started shutting things down in March. And, you know, we weren't sure with this pandemic what was going to happen to our business. I was a little, we were all worried that maybe, you know, during a pandemic, people just aren't going to want to buy horror T-shirts and, and merchandise. What we found very quickly after things started happening in mid-March is that that was not the case. In fact, it exploded our business to a point where we could not handle the volume of orders that we've been receiving. In fact, September and October were our biggest months ever as a company. And, you know, we're up a very large percentage from where we were last year. And, you know, last year was a great year. So to do sales, our normally planned sales throughout this year just wasn't an option because we couldn't keep up with what we were doing to begin with. And again, you know, we're going to you just end up starting to hit a wall and you can't you just we're just getting so backed up. So um, this year, though, or, you know, for sales, Black Friday, obviously, is going to be a big sale. And then we generally do post Christmas, like December 26th through the end of the year, because we, we shut down between Christmas and New Year's anyway. Um, this year, we're doing a full two weeks because we need it. We, we need a reset for next year because it's been a crazy year. So. We'll do a sale in between Christmas and New Year's. But when we get back, you know, we'll fill those orders. But um, those will be the two biggest sales this year. Where can they find you in Fright Rags on social media? Well, you can uh, 
on Instagram uh, and Twitter, it's just one word, Fright Rags. On Facebook, it's just facebook.com slash Fright Rags. And, of course, our website is FrightRags.com, but that is Fright-Rags.com. Benjamin, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Have a good day and stay safe. Thanks, you too. You'll find Anthony T's Power and Wrestling Show on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Instagram, and the Slasher app at Anthony T's Power and Wrestling. And on Twitter at Anthony T's Power. You'll find new episodes on DocDiscussions.com, major podcast providers, and YouTube. What is Anthony T. watching? I was originally going to watch Veronica, the new Glenn Danzig movie that is rumored to be one of the worst movies of all time, as it's gotten a lot of comparisons to The Room. I teased it on my live stream recently that I was going to do it this episode, but I'm going to have to hold it off until next episode. Don't worry, I will still talk about this film because I have a obligation to talk about this film because this might be the greatest guilty pleasure film of all time or maybe not but you'll have to wait to next episode because I just saw a film that is probably more insane like Veronica I am talking about Troma's latest release Mutant Blast the film recently made its way to VOD through Troma's new streaming service, Troma Now. This is a film I've been wanting to see ever s- since seeing that sick trailer for that film. It's like, like Glenn Danzig's Veronica, I had a very curious interest in wanting to see this film for better or worse. And before I go into my thoughts on this film. I'm going to say this right now. Mutant Blast is Troma's most craziest film ever. And yes, they've done some crazy films like Poultrygeist, The Toxic Avenger, Return to Return to Nukem High, Volume 2. But this really tops all of them. Seriously. Because this is what you have when you get to see Mutant Blast. You get a mutant lobster. A hideous, monstrous duck. That is more hideous than the duck in Return to Return to Nukem High Volume 2. You get a sword-wielding dolphin. And the absurdity continues. You get a giant... Monster-sized rat. And, of course, you get superhuman strength soldiers and zombies. Oh, wait a minute. I can't say zombies because the word zombies get bleeped out almost every time in this film. This film is so crazy. I... Loved it! 
this is definitely a top three trauma release. I never thought I would see a film that was not directed by Lloyd Kaufman be a crazy and whacked out film from start to finish. But Mutant Blast is that film. The film is a Portuguese action horror comedy directed by Fernando Ale. If I mispronounce it, I apologize. But this film really is making me crack up. His direction in this film was very good. This film may have no plot whatsoever, but I have to admit, a lot of the scenes were just so jaw-dropping that it does a great job keeping you glued to what is going on. Ale does a great job making sure that all the action and death scenes feel very gory, feel very and far out there. Seriously. This is definitely a film you really need to check out. This film also has some great humorous moments as well. Plus the fact that it also has solid lead performances. Mutant Blast, by far, is up there as one of my favorite films of this year. Because this is the most fun that I have had seeing a film. And this is, by far, my favorite non-Lloyd Kaufman-directed trauma film. Because this is a film that I'm going to be wanting the Blu-ray, like, now. Seriously. Please, Lloyd, release the Blu-ray of this film. I want the Blu-ray so bad. But I can go on and on about Mutant Blast. But we don't have much time here on this episode. So definitely rent or purchase Mutant Blast over on Troma Now. As that's the only place you will be able to find the film. Go to watch trauma.com and do trauma a favor and purchase this film because I would like to see this film be rented or purchased in a good number because I really want to see Lloyd Kaufman's latest film and one of the ways we are going to see Lloyd Kaufman's latest Shakespearean effort if this film does well on VOD if this Film this well on VOD. Maybe we can get Uncle Lloyd to release his latest film on VOD. Because let's face it. Back to my ranch earlier on theaters. We don't know how many independent theaters are going to be left after all is said and done. So us trauma fans really need to help support Mutant Blast. Because if this does well... Maybe we will see Shakespeare bleep storm a lot sooner. Because, quite frankly, we need to show Lloyd that us trauma fans are willing to rent and purchase first-run trauma films on their streaming service. Go to watch.trauma.com and definitely support Mutant Blast. I hope you enjoyed the Best of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show Volume 4. 
I've been up to a lot of things between episodes. First off, I joined a new podcast called The Dead Kids of Dairy. This is a Stephen King podcast where we do audio commentaries on Stephen King films. That brings together the hosts of Shock Treatment, Culture Shock, and this podcast, Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show, as we do a commentary track on a Stephen King film each month. The first episode is up already on Spotify, as we did a commentary track for Carrie. Check that one out. And then on Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show on YouTube, I will finally have that VS Halfway the Black Friday video up between episodes as Everything's been recorded. I just have to put it together. That should be up right after this episode. So give it like first week of August. That video should be up on the YouTube page. As I'm going to get ready to do another episode for the YouTube page. As yours truly has the Severance Sale and the Criterion Collection Sale to deal with. On the next episode of the Vlogcast after the VS Sale episode. So check that out on YouTube. Next episode, I will give you my thoughts on Terrificon, as yours truly will be going to that convention for the first time, as there's three major stars from AEW that are going to be there, Darby Allin, Sammy Guevara, Ty Conte. They also have Michael Rooker, Sheen Gunn, and more. I can't wait to attend this convention over at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. I'll give you my thoughts on that convention. You can follow my time over at Terrificon on the weekend of July 30th to August 1st over on Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show's official Instagram page at Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling. And also, I will have something next episode. It'll be either an interview or a list. One of the two. So you're going to get either an interview or the list of Anthony T. So, keep an eye out for that. Also, if you're in the Williamsburg, Virginia area on the weekend of July 30th to August 1st, stop by the Doc Discussions booth over at the Scares That Care Weekend 7 event, as Philip and Michael from Doc Discussions will be there, as they will have a booth at that convention. Definitely stop by that event. It's really helping a great cause. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a good day and support indie horror and indie wrestling. Mm -hmm.